Major Robert Rose, and welcome to Thinking Inside the Box, the podcast of Operations Group at the National Training Center for Irwin, California. Thinking Inside the Box brings you best practices from the Army's experts in combined arms operations. Today, we will be discussing the importance of delegating decision authority and proactively codifying decision-making authority before operations begin. I know this sounds a bit niche, but it is critical to ensure decisions are made rapidly by leaders with the appropriate situational awareness. While the Army focused on counterinsurgency, a combination of higher headquarters perceived that they had an increased situational awareness and their desire to minimize risk led to higher echelons consolidating decisions. We had the luxury of taking time to make decisions, but large-scale combat operations will not afford this luxury. Appropriately delegating decision-making authority allows leaders closer to the problem to make decentralized, rapid decisions rooted in the principles of mission command. It allows us to decide at a faster tempo, which John Boyd explained in his OODA loop decision-making model, in which competing sides are each attempting to orient on a problem, observe it, decide how to solve it, and then act. If we have a quicker OODA loop cycle, we can out-decide and continuously disrupt an enemy. However, there is a balance between delegating decision-making and ensuring that decision-makers have full situational awareness of risk to mission, risk to force, and risk to the reputation of the Army. To discuss how to approach this balance, I am pleased to be joined by two members of our Bronco team, our Senior Brigade Trainer, Lieutenant Colonel Adam Latham, and our Senior Judge Advocate Trainer, Major Tim Davis. Gentlemen, welcome to the show, and why don't you open up a brief discussion of your roles here at the National Training Center and your background. Yeah, thanks, Major Rose, for having us on. Major Tim Davis here, uh, the Senior Judge Advocate Observer Coach Trainer here at the National Training Center. Uh, my job is to supervise the OC team of the Brigade Legal Section and also to help the other OCTs on our team uh, understand the role of the Judge Advocate plays in assisting the commander's decision-making. Been here for about two years, 16 rotations, and look forward to uh, to talking today about decision-making. Rob, Tim, hey, my name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Adam Latham. I'm the Senior Brigade Trainer. Uh, my job here is uh, is to cover down on brigade commanders and brigade staffs um, and largely make them uh, better uh, versions of themselves as they go through the box, help them work through combining arms and synchronization in time and space. I'm also good for comedic relief. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. So Tim approached me wanting to discuss this topic. I was excited about it, but I'm a bit of a decision-making nerd. But why is it important to you? So, hey, I, you know, Rob will dive right into that. Hey, so one of the things that... Um, I think we see units, um, and it doesn't, not any specific unit, but most units struggle with, um, is how do we maintain operational tempo, um, especially as we start looking at uh, decentralizing uh, command and control. Who is allowed to make a decision? How fast can they make that decision? Do they have the appropriate situational understanding to make that decision? And then how can we disseminate information rapidly? And so one of the reasons that, you know, Tim and I have kind of talked about how do we do this better and faster to keep up with the pace of large-scale combat operations is going in, delineating up front, hey, you know, as a commander, be it a brigade or a battalion commander, you know, what, what decisions am I comfortable with my subordinates making? Which subordinates can make them? And then what, what understanding? You know, what understanding do they need to have or what conditions need to be set in order for them uh, to make those decisions? And this goes beyond what you see in a traditional decision support template or decision support matrix. This this is down to even the routine. Hey, what things am I enabling my subordinates to do so I can do something else? Uh, because what we find a lot of times is, you know, decision, uh, you know, attention span, dis- you know, all of that. It, it's a finite resource. 
you know, at some point, whether they want to admit it to themselves or not, brigade commanders need to sleep. At some point, brigade staffs, you know, need to sleep. And things need to happen even when they're not present in the main making decisions or when they're out doing something else someplace else. Um, and so, you know, what we want to kind of get after today are what are some of those considerations that, you know, uh, brigade or battalion commanders need to kind of consider before they get into the box and they're having to go ahead and, uh, and abrogate some of that responsibility for real. Right. So so where I sit, there's there's two two major changes that have driven a need to reapproach how we deal with decision making. The first in the shift from coin to large scale combat is, uh, you know, gone are the days of the Taq Mahal where every enabler is with you and, and you're able to look someone in the eye, get an incredible amount of information and make the best decision you can. Uh, with distributed command nodes, you have to figure out where your decision makers are and how they're going to maintain their situational awareness, particularly as we fight against a peer or near peer threat uh, that may degrade comms. And so as we think about decision making, part of what we hope to do is to shift away from a mindset with perfect information and a talk mahal and enable decision making at echelon with distributed command nodes. Hey, if I can just riff off that for a second, too, you know, one of the things that uh, Tim and I discuss often, you know, when it comes to decision making, it's who's enabling that decision. So, you know, Tim covers down on uh, brigade judge advocates. Um, and, you know, we, we have this this common misconception in large scale combat operations. You know, the, what does the BJA do for you? Or, hey, I'm not so much concerned about, you know, specific kinetic strike inside of, you know, a specific town. You know, hey, so we, we, we essentially kind of push off the BJA. Hey, go do legal stuff over there in that corner. That's a bit of a false sense of, you know, hey, large scale combat operations. I'm not really worried about a legal opinion. What I'd also offer is, you know, position on the battlefield if that if that BJA isn't in a place where they can identify something is going off the rails or something is maybe not quite right. You know, legal advice after the fact isn't as good as legal advice uh, before something goes bang. Um, and so sometimes, again, we, we come back to this idea of leader positioning. Where are they best suited on the battlefield to make sure that they can give that good advice or help that decision making at the appropriate time? Yes, sir. I think that's a great point. A brigade judge advocate, it's a horrible asset to waste. I mean, that, that analytical mind that a man like Tim has, uh, is it, it adds a lot of value. And to, to not make the most use of them and just think that they're, they're, they're just for legal reviews is, I think, it, it's an underutilization. But I also just really want to highlight that bit about the talk from a hall. We'll, we'll come back to this later. But for those of you who have not experienced the beauty of a division warfighter and seeing a division main command post, which you know, would put P.T. Barnum to shame with its tents. And yeah, so that is where this Taj Mahal joke comes from, is it's just a, it's a command post that looks like the Taj Mahal. Yeah, we've talked in other episodes and continue to talk about because command post survivability is a very important trend at the National Training Center. So, you know, what are some examples of when a lack of delegation or confusion about who could make decisions negatively impacted a unit's rotation. Without citing a specific example, we see this often in just about every rotation where typically it's, hey, the, you know, the three is diverted to some form of MDMP. The commander is out doing battlefield circulation. The XO is tied to a maintenance meeting. And so, you know, we start stripping away leaders who are a little more comfortable making decisions. And you've get this one battle captain who is just the most well-intentioned individual that you can find, but they see something happen. And it could be, you know, hey, we've got a SIGINT hit and that gets piped into the main or any number of different, like we see a bad guy or something bad is happening. 
or even, you know, hey, we thought this was going to happen in accordance with our sync matrix, and we see that we're, start, we're starting to develop variants. And what we see is we typically see this battle captain or battle major or chops or whoever has this, you know, for lack of a better term, they, they have this vapor lock where it's, I don't know what to do with my hands. I know something is going wrong, but I'm either not empowered to be able to do anything or I just don't know what to do. What we now end up in is this game of telephone where I've got to call a leader. I've got to call a decision maker. I've got to go and I've got to get the three who may be someplace else. You know, as we start looking at, again, dis, you know, disparate command posts and we start stripping assets away from a main command post, that three may not be even in the general like walking proximity. They may be in a completely different geographical area depending upon where plans is. Or, you know, hey, maybe the tack is out, but they don't quite have the fight yet. And we're, we're finding that C2 seam where, OK, hey, so so who owns this and what do I do? I know I know I've got variants. The enemy's doing something. Something is going wrong. What we're asking for is some forethought in stratifying who can make that decision. Hey, for that battle captain, are, are you authorizing them to, you know, maybe go ahead and, and clear ground? Can they do that? And maybe not. Maybe, hey, this, this is a new battle. I, I don't even know this person. You know, we, oftentimes we may see, like, that particular staff officer showed up two weeks before NTC started. I barely just learned their first name. Well, that's not good. I mean, you know, hey, I haven't, I haven't trained with them. I haven't necessarily certified them yet. Um, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. And so that may be a variable the commander has to think through before we get there. You know, some may not necessarily be comfortable or may not have the capacity to be able to do that well. Um, and that's okay, but we have to train them first to be able to get them to, you know, make sure we hit those wickets for, for clearing ground as a, for instance. Or, hey, we see that we've developed some variants in terms of, I thought one, two, three armor was going to go ahead and, you know, clear this objective by this time. And they are well behind. And that what that's going to drive is our inability to do this other thing over here with, you know, five, six, seven armor over there. Who's resynchronizing that? Do I need the three to do that? Do I need the commander to be there to make sure that happens? Can a battle captain start working through that and setting those conditions and then back brief a commander when they come back in? There's no wrong answer here. And I, I don't want to seem like I'm pushing the force one direction or another. But what I'm asking and what, what I think we need to see is commanders need to, need to establish that up front and help their staffs understand that. Uh, one of the mechanisms that we see work really well is commanders will show up with some sort of decision matrix or, or template that literally specifies these are the decisions that I see people making in, in absentia when I'm, not, when I'm not there, and these are the people that I'm comfortable making those decisions. And laying that out and being explicit and helping the staff understand it. They may post it. Uh, we've seen that happen in a couple of command posts, and that works really well to make sure you understand, hey, if, let's say, changing what the shadow is looking at, seemingly innocuous, but can have second and third order effects that can affect a fight pretty significantly, does the brigade commander need to be the one that makes that decision? Or can the three make it? Can the two make it? Who else can make that decision? You know, or otherwise we see, you know, a brigade commander or a battalion commander who's getting woken up every third minute, or we see people who are just letting things happen as opposed to driving tempo for the brigade. And I'll pause there to see if now that I've sucked all the oxygen out of the room. So I'll offer a couple examples. You know, when, when decisions have largely been withheld to the commander, there's a point in the battle where the commander pushes out in the mobile command group and decisions need to be made. And the commander's not in a position to make them either because they're out of comms with the main or they're no longer in a position with the situational awareness necessary to make the best decision. And so uh, decisions that need to be made aren't being made because they're withheld. Uh, the example uh, Colonel Latham gave of ISR, you know, sometimes a, a commander has a particular picture of how the ISR should be used. 
but nobody understands that the commanders withheld that decision to a leader. And then you have somebody retasking the ISR when they didn't have that decision authority. So if you don't have clear decision authority laid out, you're going to have subordinate leaders that may not have the experience or the trust or the situational awareness to make a decision, making a decision because they don't know that they're not able to make the decision. So the authorities matrix is a, is a fighting product, is a great tool to ensure shared understanding across the staff. And, and it can act as a running estimate too. Colonel Latham highlighted looking through those decisions before you come. Part of that is figuring out how you're going to array your C2 nodes and where decision makers are going to be, because any any delegation has to make sense with how the brigade fights. And then it's also something that can bear revisiting during different phases of the operation as you change how you fight, because obviously different decisions are going to be made in a with a limited objective for a battalion versus a, a brigade operation, or you may be rearraying your C2 nodes and it drives a different decision. So posting that fighting product is a great way to, to ensure shared understanding, but also continually assessing whether or not those delegations make sense as you change how you fight is important too, because most brigades that come here attempt different arrays of C2 nodes while they're here. And one decision authorities matrix might not make sense. Um, you know, my recommendation is you figure out how you're going to array your C2 nodes, you figure out where your decision makers are going to be, and then you build out the roles and responsibilities of the people involved and ensure that if you are delegating the ability to people to make decisions, that you're giving them all the support that they need to make the best decision they can. Yeah, that's, and that's really commander's homework, right? So as, as you start laying out where your command nodes are going to be and then potentially start adjusting that, who's, who's making that decision that, that might need to change? And you don't want to delegate that. I mean, that, those, you know, ultimately you're responsible for whatever decisions made or not made. So you, you want to go ahead and kind of take that on and make sure you're reviewing that product as you're publishing an order or as you're changing the array of your command posts you know, hey, maybe uh, maybe that one battle captain that, you know, who I keep coming back to, who you really trusted, that uh, that individual just got a Red Cross message. They're they're moving out. And now you've got a stand in. Well, OK, hey, we've got a review and we've got to, We've got to alter that. Or, or conversely, you know, maybe it was your three who's now out of action or, you know, for whatever reason, got you know, got pulled into doing something else. How does that change? Tying this back to this idea of command posts, you know, we see really two separate types of constructs here. We have the MSS construct. So where you have a good chunk of your staff separated back in like the DSA in a division support area who it you know, they're they're piping things forward who do you put back there and how does that affect their ability to affect a decision you know do you have the communications architecture to be able to push that forward from that military support site out forward to where the main command post is. Additionally, the, the kind of the other construct we see is something you know akin to like a command post area where you have your your nodes of your command post are spread in what amounts to like a kilometer by kilometer box. And that's underpinned by, you know, some usually good to have like a mesh network or some sort of connectivity that connects these different nodes together. And they're all piping things into a centralized point. So where you may send your admin and logistics kind of construct out, you may send your plans out to a separate area, but they're all kind of operating in, in general proximity, but way spread out. Depending upon which construct you want to go with, fine. But how does that affect your, you know, people's ability to have situational awareness of what's going on and then input into a decision? You know, that may be a consideration that you have to think about as, as things go forward. There was a lot of good information in the last few minutes of conversation between you two. And I, our visit at a couple of these points, those were great for our audience. But one thing I want to highlight and kind of kind of pull apart there, sir, is I feel like there's two different types of decisions uh, that you would need to think about when they come here. There's the decision support matrix, which you know a lot of people are familiar with. And that is really, to me, it's 
SQLs for a specific operation, where you have then a decision uh, authorities matrix, which is something that's more standardized. It's something you can think about beforehand. It's not specific to one mission. Now you, you can adjust it based on the circumstances if you think that you got some of the variables and you're understanding wrong, but you can build that beforehand to set some of these standard decisions which you think you might make in any operations, whether it's clearing ground, it's conducting an emergency resupply. So who can actually make these decisions? So how can units, before they come here, really help start codifying the authorities matrix and put it into a command post standard operation procedure or, or, or document like that? What I'll offer, I see decisions are withheld for a number of reasons. One might be resource allocation. It's a scarce resource that there's not enough of to go around. And so, you know, you need a decision maker at some level to dole out a, a finite resource. You also might have decisions withheld for risk management. Maybe the decision's tied to a certain amount of risk that only the commander or a key decision maker wants to make. And then there's also some decisions that are withheld for the reasons Colonel Latham talked about earlier. Experience, trust, maybe not having the time to, to train the decision makers to standard before you do it. And so as you think about the reasons that you might withhold decisions or delegate them, I think it, it falls into those three buckets in my view. And so my recommendation to brigade judge advocates and to commanders is not to be myopic with the decision authorities matrix to be solely focused on targeting, right? Because that's the temptation for the legal section sometimes is to focus on the kinetic strikes. But a lot of the examples that we've given throughout this are through for any number of allocation of a scarce resource like ISR, uh, maybe retasking an, a finite amount of fires to go after priorities. I mean, your division has a high payoff target list too and a, and a different idea of priorities. And so as you think about that matrix before you go, you should you should template it over the warfighting functions to see what critical decisions in each warfighting function are tied to a scarce resource or tied to greater risk for the commander or just tied to particular personalities or abilities to train at echelon before you come. And when you do that, what you'll have is You'll have done a pretty deep analysis of the warfighting functions in which decisions need to be made. You've helped identify who can make those decisions. And then, then you can begin building up the necessary structure around those folks to be able to make the best decisions they can. You know, the difference between decision authorities matrix and, a, a, you know, your traditional DSM. So a, a DSM is tied to specific operations. The if and criteria, if enemy criteria and friendly criteria are tied to a specific decision to a specific operation. So, in, you know, as developed by part of the war game from MDMP. You know, the, the difference with an authorities matrix, it's a little more general, right? So retasking ISR. Who do I feel comfortable making that decision if I'm not there to make it? That's a little more broad than what I think you might find in terms of a DSM. Now, the two can be linked, right? So, you know, part of that, one of those and conditions may be, hey, I'm not going to LD Alpha Company or whatever until I have ISR on station. And, you know, the person who is authorized to maneuver ISR from this thing to that thing is whoever I've delineated. So they, they may have some connective tissue between the two, but they are separate and distinct documents. Um, and the thrust of, you know, what, what the decision authorities matrix is designed to do is across these, these varying command nodes, who am I comfortable as a commander allowing to make that, that decision if it's not me? To Tim's point, you can delineate that. Some great measures of success there are, have you trained it? Everybody has a, some sort of home station train up before they, they get here. Have you tried it out? Everybody get, comes to NTC and we have this, this idea of like, well, I'm coming in and this is the way I'm going to play it. I'm, I'm going to play it out. Now, hey, you know, it's the National Training Center, not the National Testing Center. So maybe you show up and you're like, oh, you get to your first AAR. Like, that was horrible. Oh, my God. Like, we got to totally do something different. 
um, okay, let's try it out. Let's you know, let's, let's let's tweak it a little bit. Maybe what worked at home station doesn't work so well here for whatever reason. Myriad of different reasons that could be. It ties down to like, hey, did we have the same personalities that we had there? Did you know? Did these people go through the train up? Maybe it's different, or maybe for whatever reason, like, hey, well, this this one asset that we're really comfortable with that we were comfortable adjusting, maybe we don't have that. How how does that work? And 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 who's making that decision? That's the, the thrust of that authorities matrix is who am I comfortable with doing that? Part of that, too, if you train it at home station, it's an opportunity for the commander to describe their visualization of risk, right? Like Colonel Latham said, the commander has to go to sleep at some point. But if the commander is going to delegate decision authority to retask ISR, that's an early opportunity for the commander to say, here are the situations that I envision that we might do that, right? It could be maybe the commander's withheld non-precision guided munitions into a populated area. Like testing that out ahead of time is an opportunity for the commander to visualize risk and describe how they make decisions. Because like Colonel Latham mentioned um, a little while ago, you know, although the commander's delegating the decision authority, they're not delegating the decision responsibility. Exactly. And so do, training that at home station ensures that you're not finding out that the person you delegated decision authority to didn't share your same assessment of risk. And I think we do that in a lot of other areas, but the decision authority that comes out here, if you haven't trained it before you get here, then you're going to find it out while you're here. One area of particular peril that I'll emphasize is when even when brigades have, have laid this out well, uh, they still generally have trouble during transitions. They might have a great uh, decision authorities matrix laid out that relies upon their T2 nodes being in place and everything being stable. But at some point, the main command post breaks down and moves, either a planned jump or a non-planned jump. And if they haven't thought through the transitions, then the main command post breaks down, the TAC takes the fight. And if the decision authorities matrix doesn't match what the TAC has there, then all of a sudden, either no one's making a decision that needs to be made, or you have some people making decisions who you didn't plan on making decisions that you haven't had the chance to prepare. So as you come up with your decision authorities matrix and you look at the roles and responsibilities and where your nodes are, you also have to consider what that's going to look like as you jump, what that's going to look like if nodes go down or if comms go down, and think through those contingencies so that it, you know your, your authorities matrix has to survive first contact. It's training in friction. You know, I mean, it's you know we, we talked about crawl, walk, run in so many other areas, but with command posts, with these decisions, it, it's one thing to make it you know in a nice air condition mission training center when you're doing a command post exercise. It's another when you're in the field or when that battle captain needs to make a decision when he cannot reach a brigade commander, when you can't reach you know, the operations officer potentially, and just building that level of comfort and then the brigade commander being able to look back at the decisions that Bowcap made and actually be like, yeah, that was good, that worked, or no, we need to tweak this. I want to come back to thinking about this in terms of warfighting functions, and I think that's always a great just mental framing for any problem to ensure that you have checked through those possible decisions, but it's true. It's a lot of authorities matrices you see are very fires focused. Who gets to decide when to retest ISR, like I'm talking about engineer and asset. So just thinking through all these decisions beforehand in a garrison environment, codifying them and then again, repetitions, practicing them, which sets you up for success here. And especially think about doing it before the leader training program, before your iteration at LTP as well. So you can restart validating it there first uh, before your rotation. It's, it's a valuable thought exercise for any commander to go through. I think the other piece, understand that, that in, in terms of, you know, temporally, that decision may not affect what the brigade is doing right now, right? So we, we talk in terms of like moving engineer CCLs, these configured loads, uh, we, we know we're going to transition to the defense at some point. Uh, we don't want to have a lag when we stop the offense and when we transition to the defense and getting those those obstacles in place. Who's authorized to, to initiate that those configured load movements? Who has to make that decision, and what's the trigger? That may be eight. That may affect us eight hours from now. 
The second and third order effect of that is, hey, I'm taking a finite resource, PLSs in this instance, and consuming those uh, to move this stuff forward. Who is saying, yea, verily, go ahead and make that happen? And the, the, the irony, as Tim so adroitly pointed out, is these decisions never happen when the main is stable and not under artillery fire. Everything's just going absolutely peachy and I have perfect communication. No, these decisions typically are made when everybody's tired. We're not quite sure who has the fight between the tech and the main. We're working on a transition because, again, everything's start, starting to move forward and, and bad things are happening. How we go ahead and delineate that because those CCLs still have to move. You know, I still know I'm transitioning to a defense and I got to get those obstacles in most fast to go ahead and make sure that I'm prepared for the enemy's counterattack. You know, is who who is making that and where are they to make sure that they know, yep, okay, hey, launch them. Uh, because once they move, it's not like you're stopping them. You know, I'm not dumping a PLS rack and then going back and getting something else. And that, I think there's value in stratifying that. To your point about LTP, the value of bringing at least a draft of some variant to LTP is you have LTP coaches. The Wranglers are really, really good at this. And you have all of Ops Group that's here that can take a look at it and and provide some, you know, some left-right rudder before you have to go live in the box. But even if that doesn't happen, again, the, the worst thing that happens is, okay, hey, we miss a decision, we lose some tempo, we sit down, we AAR it, we retweak it for, you know, for the next phase, and we come at it again. The idea is work through that thought exercise and then go forward from there. Yeah, so I, as, as you are preparing, you know, with that, that draft for LTP and before coming here, how should they think about the appropriate level to delegate a decision? Should it be experience, trust, situational awareness, command post capabilities? Yeah, Rob, I think all of those are important. What, I, what I'd offer is the greater trust a commander has can drive greater authority. And so getting a decision authorities matrix at LTP is valuable because it provides a great opportunity for commander's dialogue. The brigade commander might realize that there's a decision that they want to make that's withheld to the division. And if you identify that early enough, then you can request the, the decision authority be pushed down to you. And likewise, if a battalion commander says, hey, boss, here's what you want me to do, and I think I need to have this decision authority to do it, it drives that decision. If you wait until you're ready to roll out, then it deprives the commanders of the opportunity to have good dialogue to see if the decision making makes sense. And I think what you'll find is if you come to LTP with an example and you iterate this a few times, that the commander's going to have a much fuller picture of who they trust with these decisions and if it makes sense within the construct of how they fight. Because what you'll find is the more often you do this, the more often the commander describes their visualization, the more training people get in making decisions. And then maybe that enables you to push it down even further than you had before because the commander's now built trust with people rather than trying to build it on the fly during the first phase of the operation. I think, again, the other piece is as you go through that thought exercise, defining how you want to fight, defining who you're comfortable with, making what specific decision. And again, you have the opportunity to revise and then you know, kind of show that, you know, show your work to your, your subordinates, you know, your divisional headquarters. Hey, listen, this this is this is kind of how I think I'm this is going down. And then, you know, again, I'll allow them to have, you know, have that dialogue. Uh, what I'll also offer, because a lot of this is um, is largely theoretical, and I'd like to think that most of the audience is probably convinced this is a great idea at this juncture. If commanders are struggling with, I, I'm not quite sure what this is supposed to look like. Uh, we have a host of examples that the Broncos can provide. You know, I'm the only Adam Latham on Global. So um, they're more than welcome to reach out and uh, and we can provide them with, hey, this, this is an example that we've seen, you know, work really well. And they can adjust that to, to fit their preference. And we will uh, we'll link a few examples of um, authorities matrices in our show notes that we will post on our bill suite. 
And another thing that we'll, uh, we'll link in the show notes is there's an article recently called The Graveyard of Command Posts that was uh, published by Military Review that highlighted the threat to command posts on the modern battlefield. It discusses development capabilities to allow smaller, dispersed command posts and provides an example of how a core commander could circulate the battlefield and with the right capabilities make core-level decisions at the brigade command posts. But with our current capabilities, how can codified decision delegation and training for it allow for smaller and more dispersed command posts? That's a great question. And I, I got to tell you, I'm a huge fan of that article. One of the, th- the, the most powerful quotes that I'm going to horribly paraphrase is, if we think of a command post as, as more of a service and less as a place or a thing, you know, think of the, the power that's associated with that. Now, you know, we saw a great example of that a few rotations back where a brigade commander was was out of his command post. You know, his, his command post had taken artillery. He jumped forward with the MCG and moved to one of his battalion command posts. And it wasn't so much as, you know, all your bases are belong to us. This is now mine. No, he, he, he essentially plugged in. Um, which really involved just parking his vehicle next to, you know, remoting a few capabilities out of his vehicle and then working, you know, in conjunction with that battalion commander in that battalion command post, which then sort of became the, uh, the brigade command post. I think there's a lot of power associated with that in terms of our ability to say, okay, hey, we still need to see to this fight. The main command post is either moving or it's currently untenable. Who... And what systems do I need to bring with me to be able to continue to fight this fight from wherever, wherever I am? You know, one of the things that the, the article uh, toys with is, is, you know, some technological capacity that the Army is, is still considering building with respect to, you know, uh, our upper tactical Internet and our ability to do this remotely. We, even without that, you know, each battalion has an STT, which, which gives it access to a certain number of our systems. So if we bring the right stuff with us uh, as we you know, move around the battlefield, we have the capacity to still do at least a good portion of, w- of what we're, we're able to do in the main command post. Maybe not for a long duration amount of time, but certainly you know, for a discrete amount of time. And that worked really well for this, this brigade commander at this particular juncture. It was really cool to see how that ties back to our ability to make decisions is, again, as we start laying out, again, main command post is out of action. The attack is essentially, you know, unplanned on the move. Hey, what things am I enabling people to do while I have a limited situational understanding because I'm moving? I've gone from fighting off of the brigade cop in the main command post to maybe the mini cop out of my, you know, the the battle board that's in my lap or whatever. What things are people still authorized to do until such time as I can get stationary, rebuild my situational understanding a little bit, and then continue to fight? There's all sorts of different scenarios out there where we may find the brigade commander has to disconnect for a little bit and relocate, which may then limit their capacity for understanding. But what things am I authorizing, you know, decisions people need to make or actions people need to take until such time as I can catch back up? Um, you know, and again, that, that provides some of that value that ties to, I think, the, the thesis of that article. You, you have a certain command post in a permissive environment. Maybe there's a different setup in the semi-permissive, and then you have a non-permissive environment or a situation like Colonel Latham describes where the commander has to cut off. It requires a greater depth of understanding about what inputs a decision maker needs to make a decision and what roles and responsibilities people play at those nodes. You know, that, that's sometimes more difficult than this is the TC or the driver of this section, so they need to go. 
It requires a really in-depth understanding of what roles and responsibilities do people play and who do you need when you go there. And so rather than starting off from, hey, these sections are who needs to be there, start thinking, what inputs do we need to make the decision and who helps provide those? And then if you build from there, you end up with the commander in a, in a situation where the, the people that need uh, to help the, enable the commander's decision are in a place to understand what's going on and provide the advice. But that's going to look difficult with each node. It's going to look different when you're moving. And so especially, particularly as command posts get destroyed, you have to have a much greater understanding of what inputs play into decisions as you, as you do that. The flip side of that, too, you don't want like you know, the flotilla of awesome following the commander everywhere he goes. Part of what the risk that the, the graveyard of command posts delineates is this large footprint, uh, you know, with your 50 some odd vehicles and your 100 and some odd people, that all can't move. To Tim's point, specify, hey, what exactly do I need to make a decision? Predicated on whatever that decision may be. And, And the more general, the better. To reallocate ISR, I need the following nuggets of information. Then who provides that information? Where does that come from? What is my access to that individual or that stuff? Is it, you know, hey, they can give me a radio call. Hey, am I looking at the JBCP? You know, what what is that? And then, you know, that that's going to delineate. So, hey, if I got to pick up and go, who is coming with me? Because again, you know, real estate is a, is at a premium. So, you know, if I'm if I'm rolling out in my Bradley Striker or Humvee, um, I've only got so many seats. Um, and I want to make sure I've got the right people with me to, to, to do what I need to do. Yeah, I think that this, you know, this just raises, you know, as we're thinking through the decision, authorities matrix, just understanding that, yeah, a, a commander sometimes needs to move forward to the battle to understand the situation better at a specific point. But if he doesn't have those capabilities with him to understand the wider situation, he might not be the right one to make certain decisions. And then just that balance and thinking through it and thinking of where Commander Ray needs to be of what capabilities to make the most important decisions on the battlefield while he delegates the rest to other leaders in his organization. And we've, we've covered a lot of great information in this episode. But if you were desperately listening to this podcast because you're deploying to the National Training Center in a month, what is one thing you would focus on? So what I'll offer with this matrix, the matrix is a, is a destination, right? It's, it's a great tool to achieve shared understanding. But the journey that takes you to the authorities matrix is where you mitigate a lot of the risk. You know, the commander thinking about what decisions they need to make, who's going to make them, and then how they're going to enable those decision makers in and of itself, even if you don't end up with the matrix at the end, is going to is going to mitigate risk in the brigade and drive better decisions. And what you end up with at the end is a great fighting product. But a lot of the value comes from just going through it. So my piece of advice would be, you know, look at the product that we offer, but it's, it's simply a way to do it, right? The most important thing is for brigade judge advocates and, and commanders and other key leaders in the brigade to get together and to talk about these decisions ahead of time and how they're going to array. And, and so having that conversation up front, even if the authorities matrix isn't delegated immediately or generated immediately, that's my number one recommendation. Just start the conversation as soon as you possibly can. Yeah, I think for, for a commander, I think, you know, as you start building this out or you start talking about, you know, hey, this is how I want to fight. I think some of it is going back to the root understanding of how do I process information? What inputs do I need to make a decision, irrespective of what that decision may be? And and then really understand yourself up front. Once you do that, now predicated on all of these reasonably general decisions, what are the input, what are the specific inputs and where do I get them? So, you know, if C2 ties into people, process, network, and systems, what is the process by which I am getting that specific information to make this decision? And then the people aspect of that, hey, know your people. Hey, you know, how, how comfortable am I 
with Captain Latham making a specific decision. You know, how well do I think they understand? And if I'm not comfortable, okay, that's fine. Who's going to make that then? If not that battle captain or that the chops or whoever, depending upon what that may be. And then is that leader, do they have access to the, pro- the same process we've already delineated? That I think is, you know, the journey that uh, Tim has, has highlighted here. Hey, wor- work through that. And I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, super exhaustive. I mean, there's going to be things that you don't think about where it's like, oh, gosh, if only I had known that yesterday. Uh, that's fine. But I, th- I think as you lay out what those criteria are and you, you start kind of working through and going through the journey, as, as he highlighted, the end state of which is, you know, we've cultivated this common understanding throughout the formation of this is how I make decisions. This is what the process by which I get the information that I need to make that decision. And then these are the people responsible for who's going to make that decision. Now, once that's done, now we can start delineating, all right, where do they need to be? What systems do they need to have uh, to make sure that, you know, hey, that network is, they can network that and we can work that process distributively if required, assuming that we can't all be together, all happy in one big room. And then, so we'll post in our show notes some example decision um, uh, authorities matrices, as well as uh, that article, the graveyard of command posts we've referenced. Are there any other resources you would recommend to our audience to understand this topic? You know, the matrices give you a framework by which to think through it. I think just going through the work like we talked with with this as a framework is is going to bear the most fruit. You know, absolutely working through the process. I think the, the other piece is, again, just to highlight, units don't have to do this all by themselves. There's lots of different great examples out there of, of units that have done uh, reasonably good jobs in terms of, you know, and both at the battalion and brigade level that we can either share. I would also offer that uh, you know, we've highlighted the uh, the graveyard of command posts. As commanders think through what they want their CT nodes to look like and how comfortable they are making decisions when I can't reach out and grab that staff officer and look at them eyeball to eyeball. Who can I make a decision without looking at them, with, with getting their information distributedly? And what I'd offer is they work through that. Start with everybody together and then start thinking through who you can farm out. There's no one size fits all. It's much more from a commander's perspective, what's the input and then who can I do without and then start thinking about, okay, what what does that mean in terms of how I need to shape this so that command posts can be smaller and then maybe not invisible, but certainly make maybe looking a little less important. Thank you for for joining us today, Lieutenant Colonel Adam Latham and uh, Major Tim Davis. It's been a pleasure having you on. And as always, for our audience, our observer coach trainers are always available to assist you. I invite you to look at our mill suite for the latest products from Operations Group and subscribe to the Ops Group Tat Talk series on YouTube for short lessons on successful techniques. Thank you for listening to Think Inside the Bots, the podcast of Operations Group at the National Training Center.